the National Archives podcast series. Batha Brith on the Pampas, the Welsh in Patagonia. Presented by Bruno Derrick. This talk this afternoon is about something which isn't necessarily that well-known a subject. Because when people think of the British overseas, they think of British who went to Australia and Canada and New Zealand, South Africa, United States as well. But this is about um, the settlement of Welsh people who went to settle in the south of Argentina in the 19th century. And this is a subject matter which is very well known about in Wales, I think. It's taught in schools over there. But it isn't so well known about over in England. I think it should be because it's, a, it's an amazing story of sort of great hardship and endurance against the odds. And they came through in the end, more or less. So it's... Um, and there are many documents here which record the history of this colony. So just a, a back, background, first of all, that's Argentina, um, all the major cities there. It's, uh, even today, it's a relatively underpopulated country. Most of the population live in and around Buenos Aires. Argentina itself became, sort of began its independence movement against Spain in 1810, on the 25th of May, 1810. Uh, it's called the first government junta was set up and they then went into a sort of war against the Spanish who already were fighting against uh, what they would see as rebel forces elsewhere in Spanish America. The, the Spanish weren't too worried about um, the, area, the area in and around the River Plate, Buenos Aires, because the, um, it was very much the poor relation of the, of the Spanish Empire. But nevertheless, the, uh, eventually the they prevailed over the Spanish and they, well, they declared their independence on the 9th of July 1816 at the Congress of Tucumán. And those are the two, those two dates are still very important in Argentina, 25th of July and 9th of, the 25th of May and 9th of July. The, and they, the ships and other things are, are named after those particular dates. So Argentina became independent and then for about 30, 40 years, nothing much really happened. No one went out there. The population, as it was before independence, stayed more or less the same. It's mostly um, people of Spanish descent or official people who actually moved out from Spain. Quite a number of Indians, obviously. And also, which is rather disappeared today, uh, quite a large African slave and ex-slave population, again, in and around Buenos Aires. But later on, the, in the mid-19th century, a decision was made where they started to realise how the economic potential of the land could be exploited by moving into the Pampas and just turning it over to agriculture on an industrial basis. And that, so the decision then was made that if we're going to do this, we're going to need you know, loads and loads of European immigrants because the Indians who lived over in America in there probably wouldn't want to do it anyway and are, were nomadic and weren't felt to be useful up to the task. But more to the point, the Argentines wanted to create a Latin American version of the United States, because the, uh, most of Latin America is, or well, Brazil has got a large African population, but most of Latin America is, is a mestizo country, it is mostly mixed Indian and Spanish descent. And um, but they said, we're not going to do that in Argentina, we're going to create a new country which basically is European in nature. And so they invited immigrants to come over from Europe, and millions did, mainly from Italy and Spain, but also from Russia, Russia Poland. Um, France, Germany, and also from England, Scotland, Wales, and Ireland. So that's the, um, the, the, the background to the decision made to emigrate to, 
for the Welsh major to emigrate to Patagonia, the, the Argentines wanted them out there and were prepared to offer land to them. Now, they, they probably would have preferred them had they been Catholics, I suppose, but they, they, they were European, which was the next best thing. Which, and they, they're, very keen to have, they're very keen to have as many Europeans going out there as possible. And that's just that's what Buenos Aires looks like today. A little picture of it there. If you're, it's a very if you like European, southern European cities, it's very, it's a very pleasant place really. It's called the, called the Paris of South America. Quite an elegant city. And this is a chap who oversaw the um, original, well, the expansion of Argentina into you know, what what became a very wealthy and rich and powerful country for a time. It's not now, but it was for a time back in the 20s and 30s. He started the process by opening the land up to European immigrants, Bartolomé Mitre. Now, the, the actual, I haven't got this here, but the, underneath I've got lists of all the various documents you can find on the, in this archives on relating to, the, relating to the Welsh settlement. And then you'll, basically, the British officials are very keen to monitor the development of the colony. So foreign office officials, Royal Naval captains, officials from the embassy in Buenos Aires would go down there and would provide lists of colonists living out there, numbers of houses being built, numbers of immigrants arriving, numbers of people who decided to leave, they didn't like it. And so there's a great range of documents you can find on there. If you were going to pursue the search further, I would suggest that you search on our catalogue and just put in Patagonia and see what comes up. I mean, most of it will relate to the Welsh colony. And, of course, Welsh... English, Irish, Scottish people were emigrating all over the world at that time. But in the 19th century, British people weren't pushing themselves beyond the remit of the British Empire. And they, that, that's what they did in Argentina. And I don't think they, that was really appreciated back in London. They, 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 were, they didn't mind having a Welsh colony, but it had to be, they thought it should be under the protection of the um, British flag, if you like. And so until the end of the 19th century, there's always this feeling that okay, these chaps have gone out there, they set up this rather colony, which is piercing working, but nevertheless, we'll try and encourage them to leave. That sort of feeling peters off at the start of the 20th century, and hence the records we've got on the colony after that date are rather sparse. But certainly before that date, there are lots of records, as I say, ship's logs, foreign office material, F06 is the main record series for Argentine Republic pre-1906. And I would say initially, you just search on the catalogue under... Patagonia, and then take it from there. You can always speak to me if you come in. That's a group of Welsh women out in the Chubut Valley wearing traditional Welsh dress. Although perhaps it wasn't so traditional, but it was held to be traditional. <laughs> and so they, and of course, when they went over there, perhaps they doubly reinforced that sense of wearing what was traditional for the mother country. The main question I get asked when I'm talking about this, well, people say, why are you interested? You're not even Welsh. But uh, beyond that, they say, um, the main question I'm asked is, why did they choose to go to Patagonia? The, um, well, one reason I suggested was because they, they were offered land by the Argentine government. But the, the main reason the, the, the leaders of the movement had to, to go out there was the fact that although Wales was overwhelmingly Welsh-speaking in the 19th century, the language wasn't given much recognition. There are strong, I think it was still taught in some schools, but there's strong moves to saying, well, they shouldn't be taught this language in the schools. And it's actually in their own interest not to be taught it. I mean, the, the Times newspaper in London said the Welsh language is the curse of Wales because it, 
helps, it holds them back from being absorbed into the rest of Pax Britannica. You know, they, 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 they said, they, 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 but they said it's in our interest not to speak anymore. And so the leaders of the movement noticed this, and they also noted and objected to the fact that throughout most of the 19th century, the um, Welsh, being non-conformists, had to pay tithes towards the establishment of the established church in Wales. Most of them were Anglicans, so they didn't like paying those tithes. So the, the big impetus behind the movement to move were, were those, I think, language and religion, really. The leaders of the movement had noticed, however, because they had been over to the United States, they had noticed that when Welsh communities had been established in various parts of America, they had been able to maintain themselves for a generation or two and set up newspapers and um, publish books and actually have a thriving Welsh community in various parts of America. But within a generation or two, it had been absorbed into the surrounding population. There weren't enough of them. So they wanted to go as far away as possible just to escape from the English, really. Some of them, anyway. And they, 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 wanted, to, they wanted to move as far away so they could establish a new Wales beyond the seas where they could maintain their language and traditions not being interfered with by the British government. Now, you could say they chose a rather peculiar country to go to, in that sense, Argentina, but Patagonia at that time was uncharted territory. It was, if you like, a terra incognita. People just didn't know about it. They weren't quite sure who owned it. I mean, both Argentina and Chile claimed a whole lot of it. But, but if they had perhaps looked further into it, the subject, they would have seen that Argentina, certainly in the period when it was encourage, encouraging millions of immigrants from all over Europe, needed something to unify the country. And the two things which really unified the country were the flag of Argentina, if you like, or the, the, the political system over there, and also the language, the Spanish language. So they would have been given no real encouragement to speak Welsh out there by the Argentine government. So, and in fact, they weren't. And, and so fundamentally, that's what they, they noticed. They noticed that when the Welsh went overseas, they tended not to maintain their language and not to maintain their traditions. As I said, the, 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 the communities in Argentina, Patagonia, were at that time, were the, 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 the Tewelcha Indians, who were sort of nomadic peoples, who didn't sort of build any permanent dwellings, moved around and about. And the land itself was, well, was hardly known at all, and it was sort of a mythical land. The term Patagonia actually means land, I think it means land of people with big feet. And that's all people knew about it. They said they've got big feet over there, and there's much, not as much else to say. So the, they travelled around Wells recruiting volunteers and as it happens the the volunteers who did decide to go came from those parts of Wales where the Welsh language actually was in relative decline and actually did partly die out over the next 50-60 years places like Mountain Ash various other towns near the northern border of England up near Liverpool and Manchester but they were still Welsh speaking when they went out there and they they, they, tend, they tend to congregate in Liverpool, well, they actually, some of the settlers actually had moved to Liverpool and Manchester before going out there, but when they got enough people, enough people who had agreed to go out there, they all moved up to um, Liverpool and then basically waited for a ship to be made ready for them and <laughs> spending money and living in hotels, I think, for the grim hotels up in there until a ship was made available and eventually one was. Now, this is paraphrasing it a bit, because a, a huge amount of negotiation had to go into this with various authorities, including the Argentine authorities and their agents in this country. Um, but they managed to get hold of this ship eventually, which was a converted tea clipper. 
which had been chugging around the South Seas over the previous 60, uh, previous 20, 20 years or so. And anyway, so they, when they, after lying there for in, in dock in Liverpool for several weeks, the ship eventually left, and they um, headed off to, to South America. And almost immediately, the ship almost foundered off the coast of Anglesey. And if it had, they would just presumably have written off the whole idea as a, as a bad idea and just gone home. You know, it's just, just down the road. But, they, they, but it didn't founder. And they, they eventually, it took them two months to get there. The voyage itself was, was recorded and illustrated in London News. And they give a lot of information there about people coming and going. At the end, one ship having on board 148 Welsh passengers, in fact, it was 153, sailed for Nueva Bay in Patagonia, where it is intended to form a Welsh settlement. So the actual terms of the colony were known beforehand. The, the Mimosa set sail on so May 28, 1865, and arrived in New, New Bay, or Nueva Gulf, in, on July 28, exactly two months later. So it's the very worst time to arrive. They arrived right in the middle of the South American winter. And they had no provisions with them. They had hardly any food. There were very few farmers on board the ship as well. So when they landed there, they had, their ability to survive off the land was very much restricted. Now, there's hardly any vegetation in that part of South America, hardly any trees. So all these winds, icy winds coming up from the Antarctic, met no obstacles, and they were paralyzing them as they were on the beach. And they, they, some of them may have had second thoughts, but it was a bit late by then. Uh, this is the crew list and agreement of the Mimosa. It hasn't come out very well there, but the, what it's basically saying is the, this is the agreement underpinning the voyage, and they were told to go out to Chubut province um, and any parts thereof or, or close by, and then come back, <coughs> basically just to deposit the load there and then leave them there, really, and it, which is what happened. They say it wasn't the um, easiest of voyages, and there were births, marriages, and deaths on board. Morgan Jones and Rachel Jenkins were born on the voyage going over there. William Hughes and Anne Lewis were, ma were married on board the Mimosa. And then Catherine Jane Thomas, James Jenkins, Elizabeth Stollen, and John Davies who were all infants, all died on board. So they had quite a few casualties even before they started. But the, uh, so they ended on June 28th, July 28th, and it, amazingly, they, they survived. I mean, there's some documents here, I mean, none of them did die, died afterwards. One man, David, David Williams, went for a walk and never came back. I don't know where he was going to walk to, but, <laughs> but he went for a walk when he reached the land, and they found his body 20 years later. But he just walked out into the desert to get some food or fuel, possibly. And he, um, he was never seen again. The, we got this... In 18, 1866, a year after the colony was set up, there actually was a sort of inventory of the population, and it listed the numbers of people who had arrived and the casualties had taken place, and number of people who had left the colony, those had moved on to the Falkland Islands. That can be found in FO6-263. But just going back to the period before the, they set, went out there, this is Michael D. Jones, who was 
uh, sort of fiery preacher from Bala in North Wales who was the sort of genius behind this movement. He, he's, he's completed some sort of question and answer session on behalf of the Foreign Office and he was asked, you know, um, basically what, what, what the plans were for the immigrants, what they're going to be doing when they get there, what they're, they're going to be living. I think he, he, he was actually one of the people, he, he may have perhaps exaggerated the extent to which they would find um, a sort of land of milk and honey over there, because that's certainly what they didn't find. And as you see in this petition, which is dated 1866, the following year, when they went out there, they were, if you like, sold a false prospectus on the colony. They were told it's going to be, I don't know if they actually said a land of milk and honey, but they were told it's going to be, you could have prosperous, good lives out there as farmers living off the land, and you can replicate your lives in where, back in Wales with as much, you know, as well as you could back home. In fact, they, they didn't find that at all. So when they found that, when they landed there for the first year or so, they were starving. In those early years of the colony, you find quite a few petitions signed by people living out there. Now, you should be fairly careful of petitions because petitions don't tell, these sort of petitions don't tell the whole picture. They might tell what some people are thinking at a particular time. And of course, some of these people would have been, were illiterate, couldn't read and write, like hence Rachel Jenkins just left her mark there. So you, you may, maybe there's some doubts as to whether they knew what they're, or knew what they're signing up to. But what they said here was, uh, when we arrived in this colony, we expected that every preparation was made to receive us according to what was published. But to our wonder, after a long sailing, there was nothing, in short, to comfort the whole party but the open air day and night. And many of this party have been in great need of food, especially those who are situated on the borders of Chapat River. We had nothing there to keep us alive for many weeks, only a few biscuits, barely two of them each to each person a day, and at last a small cup of water mixed with tea only for several days to support our wants and weak constitutions, and we have at present to live on dry bread and water. In one word, we have nothing sufficient as food in any way but a very short allowance, neither clothing of any kind. Many of our friends are wearing their last clothing and nothing to depend on but the bare skin towards the winter season. There is here no preparation in any way by the, by the council of this movement to supply our wants in great need. In one word, we are in great distress in many ways. We are like slaves in bondage or prisoners in imprisonment because there is in this colony no liberty, neither convenience to move, to move us elsewhere. And according as we are situated, we are applying to you as a governor of an English colony, as a governor of the Falkland Islands, to sympathise with us, to move us to the Falkland Islands. For God's sake, have mercy upon us and bring us to British liberty. So it's fairly strong stuff, but they, this was in 1866, so it's a year after the colony was set up. What's interesting is it does record the names of some of the settlers there and actually does obviously give a clue as to what their circumstances were like at the time. This was a year or two years before one of the settlers found a way to irrigate the land. And henceforth, after that, it became a lot easier, or just possible, in fact, to, to live off the land down there. But certainly when this was being sent, I mean, they obviously were in great distress, but nevertheless, it, at that time, the colony's future was very much in, in the balance, and they were, they were worried about starving to death. Going back to the, um, 
the plans plans made before the colonists went out there. Again, you're saying they hadn't really prepared themselves very well for it. They were told the clothing worn in Wales will do in the settlement, but it would be advisable to have light things for crossing the equator, <laughs> which wouldn't have taken very long. But <laughs> it is expected that there will be merch a merchant taking out abundance of clothing material for sale. Well, there wasn't. I mean, it's too far to get down there. You wouldn't have had merchants chugging back and forth to this part of the world, certainly not over the winter months from about April to October. Every immigrant shall take within 15 cubic feet of, feet of, implements, of implements free for all of the goods payments you made at the rate of 50 shillings a tonne. Again, they, they didn't always take the implements with them. They, they didn't. I mean, like a lot of immigrants, to, they, often, they took what they thought they needed or they wanted. So you find people taking out things which are sort of rather ill-advisable or unneeded or not necessary, and they didn't really prepare themselves for the harsh fact that they had to, they're living, a sort of initially anyway, a very bare agricultural existence, living off the land, and the land wasn't getting much in return, so they hadn't really thought about all that. English money will do in the settlement, only let it not be in gold or in notes. So, but I think they used a lot of barter at the beginning. I mean, money had no, money had no value. I mean, the, the, uh, they were just among themselves, really. The, uh, they did also. They, they were able to sell some of the goods to the local Indians, or to Welcher Indians, who also bar traded back with them. And some of the Indians actually learned Welsh as a consequence out there. So you had Welsh-speaking Indians learning Welsh out there. But they, they generally had good relations with the local um, Indian population, In, and that, that normally was maintained for some long period afterwards. And then they got a, they decided how the settlement will be ruled by a council of twelve members. So, from the start, it was a Welsh-speaking council. It was a settlement of, in Wales where the actual forms of government of local government in Wales were replicated over in South America. One problem they had was that they were they were very they seemed to be very religious, and so the leaders of the movement did say, well, you know, we're not going to read any food not mentioned in the Bible in the Old Testament or the New Testament. And in South America, when you get these, you know, these guanacos and these uh, armadillos and other creatures, <laughs> which aren't mentioned, well, they wouldn't eat them, but there's good meat in them. But initially, one reason why they were in rather difficult circumstances was because they weren't eating food not wanted by scripture until a few years later, some of one of the other Baptist ministers said, well, you know, we can make some of that. <laughs> they, 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 they said, well, it is reasonable to do this given our circumstances. So that particular attitude wasn't really maintained. And that's a list of some of the, um, that's the list of some of the settlers who signed the name to that petition I quoted just now, and given the number of cows owned, the numbers of sheep owned. So the more cows you owned, the more prominent position you had in the colony. And this is a, this is a further petition here. This is dated a number of years later. Immigrants came and went, and later immigrants which came in in the 1870s had to move into an area which had already been settled for about 10 years, and there were sometimes conflicts between the original settlers and the later people who were coming in from Wales. And this one here says, uh, this is another petition to the Queen. We, the undersigned subjects of Queen Her Majesty Queen Victoria, now residing in Chibut in the Argentine Republic, urgently desire that, if possible, we be removed from a said colony to some part of Her Majesty's dominions where we may be enabled to obtain employment and the necessities of life. For in our present condition, we are unable to obtain either, either. 
we were, through forced reports, induced to come to Tribut Colony in hopes of obtaining for ourselves and families comfortable homes, instead of which we have found nothing but want. And that's into the 1870s, so even after they had worked out how to you know, irrigate the, the, the land and how to make a bare living off the land, a number of people were still going out there and were not faring at all well. This is um, a list, it's commonly called Berwin's List, because Berwin was one of the immigrants. He, he prepared a list of passengers who arrived in, who were who, who aboard the Mimosa and who were sort of there a year later. So basically it's an, it's an inventory of the colony or a list of all the inhabitants of the colony a year after the, they first landed. So I suppose in a way it's a bit like passenger list for the Mayflower or its, its equivalent. And it lists uh, occupations and none of them were called farmers, but I, I think that was really what their occupations were when they got over there. They weren't by trade or by background farmers, but they had to become farmers when they were over there. So it's more likely to refer to the occupations they had within the colony itself. And then it talks about the various people who left as well. Gone, gone to, uh, died in Liverpool, so he never actually, he never actually got there. Uh, drowned in the Chibut River. Died of whooping cough, convulsions. And then the, they actually had a doctor who went out there, Dr. Green, who decided not to stay. He, 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 he left the colony as well after a few months. By the 1870s, though, um, for a number of reasons, mainly because they were working the land, immigrants were coming in, fresh immigrants were coming in from Wales, the colony had established itself rather precariously. But from this period onwards, you, you do start to get regular visits from ships and they employed officers who were actually were charged beforehand or charged beforehand with going out there and reporting on the colony. And this, the captain of uh, HMS Village in 1876, for example, said, um, I arrived at the mouth at sunset on the 16th of February. We fired a gun to attract attention, but I was uncertain whether the ship had been seen by the settlers who lived somewhere away from the shore. Soon after dark, a signal fire was observed on the hill near the river. Feeling satisfied we had been seen and not wishing to run any risk by attempting to cross the bar of the river in a boat at 5am, we weighed and they anchor and they went into the colony where they are met by various officials. So I quite like the idea of these people going down to the river and lighting fires to attract the attention of the visiting vessel. The country through which we rode was most uninteresting, being arid and covered with stunted brushwood which it still is today. But they were, they were, well, received, they were well received by the locals and they were hospitably treated insofar as they could be hospitable given their circumstances. The, the files that we have here don't necessarily show an acrimonious relationship with the colony and authorities back in London when the United Kingdom. It, it wasn't, it, it, I think, it could be argued by some, that some people have actually seen it as only as a movement to establish an independent Welsh identity well away from the rest of Britain. But the, the records don't seem to show that. And it could also be argued that when you actually get down to South America, that's when you start to feel perhaps more, uh, <laughs> more British than you realise you were back home because the, the environment they were in was so, was so hostile, really, and hardly anyone was living down there. And even, even the local Indian population was only barely able to sort of live off the land down there. So when they actually been out there a few years, whatever their feelings beforehand, they tended to welcome these ships coming over 
with letters and news from back home and also supplies and also people they could talk to about their condition. And again, you're getting these are lists of all the settlers in the colony. This particular list is from 1875. The giving the number of calves owned, pigs owned, uh, milk, cows, basically showing the whole goods and chattels and how, how wealthy they are. That's in ADM 147-1. You see, their lists, their lists all got solidly Welsh names, most of them anyway. Um, I mean, this, like, 1875, 412 turned up unannounced in 1874. And it created one or two problems because they had no provisions had been made to sort of look after them or give them a shelter or give them housing. Because by then they actually were building sort of fairly basic housing structures to live in. But these 412 immigrants just turned up. And they're partly recorded in these names here. These aren't the same names you're going to see on the original list of settlers back in 1866. These are mostly new names who just arrived out there, and they didn't, um, uh, there were one or two problems which occurred as a consequence of that. And on the same voyage, someone made, um, well, they, made, they, made, they, <laughs> they reported on the sanitary condition of the colony, which is, uh, makes very interesting reading. It's, um, their diet, well, they, they tend to have intestinal problems because of the nature of their diet out there, because they said the heavy reliance on bread and jam but they also recall, you know, um, numbers of women dying in childbirth and other illnesses as well, and what they, what sort of ailments they tend to be prone to, and it, it does make rather interesting reading. On the whole, the, the doctor says at the end, he says rather patronisingly, he says, "Well, I think they've done quite well because they, they they actually have managed to. They aren't actually dying of starvation, but their diet wasn't wasn't great, and they and they." When this doctor, of course, went there, they, they rushed up to him to complain about their ailments. And the, the colony developed and, continued, and new immigrants continued to come into Wales. People were also leaving the colony as well. In the 1880, 1886, a large shipment of, well, a large number arrived from Wales, mainly to build a railway linking the chief rail, Welsh towns, which were called a Trelew and Gaiman with Puerto Madryn on the coast, which was where the, <coughs> the Welsh originally settled. And the, uh, the, the railway was built, and it actually was still in use until about 30 years ago. But the, the settlers who came out to build the railway, often many of them stayed on afterwards, even though obviously the, their reason for going out there was nothing to do with preserving the Welsh language or Welsh identity. They were going out, went out there purely because they'd been employed to build the railway. And this, this is about the same time. You're getting, the, you're noticing how the population is changing, really. So, in the in the area of the Chubut colony, getting two thousand Welsh, some other British people, lots of Italians coming in, and Argentine-born people as well. But the you can see how the colony was develop, developing. And the, 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 the crops they grew were actually were winning prizes in various uh, competitions held abroad. So some of, these, some, some of the settlers were doing very well indeed. And a number of them actually were sending their children back to Wales to be educated in Welsh, in, in, a, in a Welsh schools, and then returning to Argentina afterwards. And this is quite a good snapshot as it was at, towards the end of the 1880s, giving all the different religious denominations out there which newspapers, the Dravod, which 
it was edited by one of the founders of the colony, Mr. Lewis Jones. So that it was a, it's a small settlement, but it was it was so beginning to be self-governing by this by this stage. So the original plans or ideals which underpinned the colony were were to a large extent being met. Well, the Argentine government was involved in virtually everything, really. I mean, they, they, right from when they gave the land to the original settlers, which was created difficulties, if you like, which are reflected in our documents a number of years later, because they, they, they had a vested interest in this, and this was pointed out to the um, uh, Welsh settlers that the, the government of Buenos Aires had actually been helping to establish and maintain the colony although it was with Welsh hard labour that it was, it was really maintained on a day-to-day -day basis. Nevertheless, it was being subsidised by governments in Buenos Aires to an extent, and also um, they were supply providing supplies. Money would have been raised back in Wales as well for projects such as the railway. And, and partly, I mean, the thing is, it's because they're by this stage producing lots of wheats and goods, and there you see this, the ostrich feathers, guanaco rugs, this stuff was being sent by this trains to the coast and then being sent back to Europe or being exported all over the world. So there's an economic interest in um, actually helping to finance the railway as well. So it was a fairly, um, you know, fairly ex extensive economic output, really, by the 1880s, 1890s. And this information was again supplied to the captain's senior office, officer on HMS Sirius in 1893. You see a little map of the colony drawn about that time as well in the mid-1890s. David Lloyd George went out there in the mid-1890s when he was a young man to visit Little Wales Beyond Wales, he called it. And his line, and, and he was quite keen on them leaving. I mean, he, 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 was, he was very, uh, he, he didn't have no problem at all with the Welsh settlement, but he thought it should be within the umbrella of the British Empire. But there you see the, the, the extent of the, of the communities in and around those places called Rawson or Rawson, and on the Atlantic coast near the peninsula Valdez there. Then you've got the river Chubut, which leads right up to the border of Chile. And in the 1880s, a second community was established close to the Andes called Kumavrid, which means or Pleasant Valley. And I went there a couple of years ago, and it's actually, it is rather a lot nicer. I mean, it, well, it's not, well, it's different anyway. It's very much more mountainous and lots of valleys and rivers. It actually does resemble Wales much more than the original settlement does. So by the 1880s, 1890s, the communities were established enough for them to send to establish an offshoot colony over near the border with Chile, which again pleased the Argentine government because that meant they had, they, they had, a, they had a settlers living across the whole of the valley, or uh, across all of the pampas in the, uh, in the middle of the Patagonian desert, right up the Chilean border, and these people were Argentine citizens, or were in theory Argentine citizens, so it helped to reinforce Argentine claim to the whole of that land because Chile wanted to grab it off them. But in the end, it stayed, stayed with Argentina. But this is in the same document we saw just now, talking about people who were of the opinion that whatever the virtues of the colony, perhaps it would be better if they, they left. This is one of the bones of contention. The subject of religion brings us me to a grievance which appeared to be general with the colonists and more or less connected with their religion. It is reference to the service in the National Guard, which is compulsory for all men of Argentine birth between the ages of 18 and 31 years. Drilling takes place once a week for three months in a year, the day selected by the authorities being Sunday. 
Now, of course, Welsh being uh, non-conformist would object to doing anything like that on a Sunday. And from, uh, and from time of 7 to 11 a.m., so that would be coincided with their morning service, really. That, uh, that created a lot of bad feeling. And, but it was, going back to what you were saying, it really was the Argentine state saying, you know, we've helped to finance and set up this colony. You are, they were more saying to people, you're going to have to become part of the Argentine state, which heavy emphasis on the use of the Spanish language. Schools in the 1890s would have been speaking, teaching in Welsh only. And so the Argentines said, well, this is not good, you should be teaching in Spanish only. That, 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 was, that was the line they took. So these difficulties were arising by the 1890s. This was one, certainly one aspect of it. But at the same period of time, you get, you'll, you'll see this, which is a loyal petition sent to Queen Victoria um, from the, on behalf of the inhabitants of the Tribute Welsh colony in uh, Diamond Jubilee in 1897. So, so this was signed by a large number of people, but it was generally signed by the leaders of the colony who had fairly prominent positions in business or in the municipality, and they were expressing their loyalty to Queen Victoria again. So you're getting perhaps mixed messages coming out of this. The other colony I uh, told you about, which is near the Chilean border, it presents a very different appearance to that part of Patagonia which I just crossed. And the broad valleys which are watered by the melting snows and the springs from the hills form as good grazing land as any to be found in the country. The colony of the 16th of October is combined with an area of 50 leagues of measured land, only 30 of which have been taken up, 20 to the south being still occupied. It is composed of several valleys, the two most important being drained by the rivers Esquel and Colientes. The latter has been christened by the Welsh Cumavrid, uh, or Pleasant Valley and, Valley, and extends 19 miles east and west with a breadth of one and a half to three miles. The colony is bounded on all sides by lofty hills, many of which are snow-capped even in summer. The valleys are about 1,300 feet above sea level. So this, this was, he was greatly struck by the beauty of the scenery there. So this was very different from the original settlement. And quite a few of the colonists did move there, but it didn't have quite the same Welsh, overall Welsh character as the original settlements did, because not enough of them moved over there really. But it was <coughs> certainly part of the way they were developing and exploiting the land around there. Wild berries and especially alpine strawberries grow in great abundance with the slopes of the mountains are covered with thick forests of pines and bereli trees. So, and it would have been a land which in those days would have been hardly ever visited beforehand except by, obviously, the Native Americans. Yes, this is the log of the RMS Orisa. Now, this ship left Canada. This, sorry, this ship left Port Madryn taking aboard these Welsh people, well, with Welsh names anyway, uh, we assume their background, and they went back to Liverpool, and two or three days later they sailed to, Pat to Canada, so they became Welsh, Welsh Patagonian Canadians. <laughs> I mean, they might as well stay back in Wales, but they are, what's interesting about this, this, this represented the biggest mass migration from the colony back to, well, in fact, well, first of all, to Wales and then to Canada. And a number of issues were coming out. One was the Sunday drilling for the National Guard. The other was a whole series of disastrous floods at the, towards the end of the 1890s. So the, a number of people lost their land. And 
there's a big movement in Wales and England at the time, in London especially, to say, well, we should, we should encourage them to end this experiment and we'll encourage them to leave, uh, either go back to Wales or go back to another British colony. And this resulted a number of years later in uh, these ones, these settlers leaving the colony and going to Canada. Now, a lot of these people would have come in later. Some of them were, had come in to build a railway in the 1880s, and it felt they weren't necessarily as committed to the settlement as the other people were. But anyway, they had found it very difficult to make a land on there, so they, they left and went to, to Canada. After that, the British government said, well, we've given you every incentive to declare your wish to leave. In fact, they helped to finance this trip as well. Those who did, hadn't taken it up were felt to have declared themselves de facto Argentine citizens and therefore no, no longer of any interest to anyone. So that was a dividing line. It was 1902 when the ship left and those who stayed behind, the British really lost interest. There you are, that's the names of the people who went to Canada. The ones who went to Canada initially tried to recreate what they left behind in South America. But because there are so few of them and they're scattered over wide territory, they were they lost their they lost the language pretty quickly, I think, because they they, they married other there weren't enough people who went over there. And they tended to marry other people who had no knowledge of Welsh at all, so they used English as you'd expect. Although when they had the hundredth anniversary of the Welsh colony in 1965, a number of people did come down from from Canada, and by doing so, suddenly remembered the Welsh and Spanish they hadn't spoken for 60, 70 years. But, but they went back there and they suddenly remembered it all. It's quite a nice story. But people were still going, immigrants were still going out there. And here we are in BT20, this is another passenger list. 1911 was the last major migration out there. And these people were, I think some of them were perhaps still alive now, but they, they'd be pretty old if they were. This is 1911. I think certainly some of them went out as children, were still around fairly recently. And this was the last major migration because it effectively, when the First World War came along, it effectively stopped mass migration out there. And you can find details of incoming and outgoing people going to Patagonia by online now. Was, whereas if you're just searching for anyone who's going abroad to say Australia or Canada or New Zealand, it's rather do, difficult doing that online if you don't know where they went or when they went or which place they the, the, sh the ship went to. But with Argentina, you can do it quite easily because if you just narrow the search to Argentina and Puerto Madryn, then I tell you, the only people going to Puerto Madryn before 1914 were Welsh people going to live there. There's no other reason for going there. So, uh, so you, can actually now, you, you can actually look at the lists of all people who went out there online from about 1890 onwards. And of course, you can do it free if you come to the archives here. By this stage, they were actually getting more people who were, you know, proper farmers and quarrymen, people who would be very useful for working on the land over there. And then if you say, I haven't been able to find a great much more about it over the next 30, 40 years, come the Second World War, you find um, this chap here was making inquiries about the, the community of, the, the, the Welsh-speaking community in, in Argentina, but partly because they wanted to see who's, uh, where their sympathies lay in relation to the war at the time. <laughs> and Argentina was certainly was neutral, declared war on Germany about two months before the war ended, but throughout the war there were the British government were a bit didn't were aware in case it did side to side with the Axis side. And so this was one reason was to find out the level of sympathy with Britain down over there. 
in, in southern Argentina. And thereafter, you get the officials in Buenos Aires would go down there and would send back reports on a community which had really been absorbed into Argentina uh, and they were considered themselves Argentine by the stage. The, there's a note here that said, the Argentine government's proposal to amend the constitution to compel foreigners residing in this country to obtain Argentine nationality by naturalization caused great anxiety among the British community in Patagonia. But someone wrote, this is not correct on there, so I'm not sure what the, uh, <laughs> the correct truth is on that point. But the, the, certainly by the, by the 1960s, when this file is dated from, I think, 19, late, late, late 1940s, you, you'll find that they, you're talking of um, people who's who are born over there, their parents were probably born over there, maybe their grandparents were, so they, that's possibly where their natural allegiances lay. Although that said, the very last survivor of the crossing on the Mimosa only died in about 1950. He went over as a small child and lived to his 80s or so, died about 1950. Then throughout the 1960s, 1560s, there was sporadic interest in the colony. I don't know if anyone here can read Welsh, but this is, um, this is a telegram sent out there in 1965 on the occasion of the 100th anniversary of the settlement. And there's a big sort of jamboree over there in 1965. And lots of people went out from, from Wales. And that really marked the sort of beginning of revived interest in the, in the Welsh colony, especially over it in, in, in Wales itself. And they had various uh, cultural gatherings at the time. Who are us, the Centenario de la Colonización Galesa del Tibet, and you had lots of um, you saw a meeting of the sort of Welsh like, liking of estetics uh, and singing and music. They combine that with the Argentine. They, they enjoy uh, asados or having meals out or eating out barbecues, basically. And there's lots of that sort of stuff going on in the 1960s. So it did help to reunite parts of Argentina with that part of Argentina with the mother country, as they might see it. And by the late 60s, <coughs> they're, just, they're declaring the Welsh Tibet have practically lost all ties of Britain, although none now speak English, <coughs> except what they may have learnt in Argentine schools, and only a minority, most of the older generation speak Welsh, although many are able to sing it. They receive the pilgrims wholeheartedly, warm-heartedly, but if in many cases it was difficult to estimate how much a visit really meant to them as hosts, this may have been because they already felt themselves more Argentine than Welsh. For the pilgrims themselves, these are the, people, the visitors from Wales, um, this, is, this actually is 1965, on the other hand, the occasion was a unique and unforgettable experience tinged with emotion. They were able to see the contribution which their ancestors had made to the development of a fabled land, but they could not fail to realise that in a few years the Welsh characteristics of Tibet society, which they saw today, would be a thing of the past, and that as the Argentine people pushed on, as ultimately they must, with the exploitation of their southern provinces, the racial and cultural dilution of Patagonia's Welsh heritage would one day make it no longer recognisable. So rather a gloomy uh, outlook at that time, but in fact, it, wasn't all the, it hasn't altogether happened. The, um, when I was out there, I noticed that I mean, the, the language is still spoken, by, especially by older people. The, they were quite proud of the fact that uh, younger people also speak it. But the trouble is they, they speak it as a language learned at school. Because 
whereas the Argentine authorities in the past were very, weren't very keen on it, now they are, but only as a language taught to children at school. It's not really a language, an organic language you're naturally speaking at home. So to that extent, they are telling you the truth, if you like, but whatever your background over there, and there are lots of Indians who have moved into the land from further north who are basically recolonizing land, which you might say was originally theirs anyway, but they, they, there's, there's lots of people out there now. Lots of Arabs have moved down there, lots of Italians, Slavs, lots of people with it. If you send your, children, if you send your child to school over there, they'll learn Welsh, you know, so it's a sort of unifying thing. It's part of the cultural history of the area. This document here is dated 1970, and I said, I've been told I might encounter some anti-British feeling among the Welsh. I found no evidence of this. Their love is, of course, for Wales, but I've discovered no, uh, no resentment on the, or the connection with any other parts of Britain. Plessy Coed, the Welsh teams in Guymon was packed for my appearance, and the occasion was reported in the local press as a function of the Collectivitat Britannica. So the, uh, you know, this is 1969, and in the same report, he said, um, sentimental traditions apart, there are three things which hold the community together, religion, the language, and music. Both the first two are in danger. The United Church of the Valley, which groups into various Welsh Protestant denominations, consists of 13 chapels in the valley and two in the hills around Eskel, that's near the Andes. But a lot of the Welsh chapels over there are closing or under threat, aren't being used anymore, I'm afraid. Or, but they're, they're, they're not as being used as much as they were. But the ambassador's representative who went down there had a good time and he said he thanked the colony for its kindness and hospitality and the festival he attended, which concluded with the traditional Oesi Biriath Gimalai. I think it's uh, Long Live the Welsh Tongue. And then they had a, a choir which sang Judas Maccabeus later on. So. They, they maintain the, the singing traditions of Wales. They say that our catalogue here has details over 10 million document descriptions. You could, as I said earlier on, initially search just under Patagonia and see what comes up. That's one example of what does come up, FO371-74320. You could also search on online because uh, using the census returns because quite a number of the migrants would have returned to Wales and would have put down Patagonia or perhaps Argentina as a place of birth. Fortunately, if you're searching on census returns, you need to put a first a name in, don't you, Jerry? You need to put a name in. So you, a, a typical, <laughs> if you want to get an idea of what it says, so a, a Welsh and that Jones and then born in Patagonia and then you get that uh, file there on Taliesin Jones, who, was, who may have been born over there and was an Argentine subject, but by 1901 was back as a, a, co a coal miner back in Wales. This is the passenger lists I was mentioning earlier on. It is a lot easier searching for people who went to specific colonies, not just the Welsh one, but any other parts of the <coughs> world, rather than destinations which attracted people from all over the place. And They'll be made available by Apada, ancestry.co.uk, also by Find My Pass, I believe. It's a free to search website. There's a charge for viewing the full entry and downloading the images of the passenger lists, although you can, there's no charge for searching on site here at Kew. No, it's ancestors on board, which did passengers, uh, outwards bound passengers. You can search outward bound passengers in 
online as well, up to 1960. And again, the same applies. You can download this information free of charge by coming into the office here at Kew. And that's an example of what I meant earlier on. So again, you could use the name Jones, going to Argentina, destination port, Puerto Madryn. If a couple of other books you might like to read, that's a very good study of the community over there, The Desert and the Dream, a study of Welsh colonisation in Djibout by someone called Glyn Williams. And then the other book underneath by Susan Wilkinson, which was published a couple of years ago, is The Life of Times of the Ship That Sailed to Patagonia, which gives a complete history of the ship itself and an account of the voyage and a description of what happened to the ship afterwards when it was finally broken up and abandoned. Certainly gives an, an idea of what it was like sailing on converted tea clippers in the middle of the uh, 19th century. And, and that's it really. I mean, it's, uh, it's, there are many documents on this subject here and I would, if you're interested in it, do come and speak to me or order them up and have a look at them. But it, it, it was, I can think of no instance of when the British went abroad where their fortunes were monitored so closely as this one here, especially for those four, first 40 years of the colony after which they lost interest, really. But for those for the first 40 years, it, there's a huge amount of information, and it's not available online, if, if you, uh, the passenger list are, but were you to come in here and route around, you can be surprised what you find. And these aren't records like the diaries and letters and photographs you might get at the National Library of Wales, you know, in Aberystwyth, which were sent back and forth through the colony. These are the official records, but as we saw in those petitions, these actually list the names of people and you give an idea of their social status, the number of cows they owned, the number of pigs they owned, and what sort of life they lived when they were over there. Okay, so if you're interested, I do suggest you pursue the subject. This event was recorded live on the 14th of January 2010 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.